This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. I'm Jenny. I'm Julie from A Good Story is Hard to Find and Forgotten Classics Podcasts. I'm Brian. I'm Mike. Uh, um, Mike, you're uh, you're a friend of Jenny's, right? You work at the same university. We do. We both work at Furman, and I teach a first year seminar about Mars. So you're you're going to do all the corrections that are <laughs> obviously needed for this book. No. I'll do my best. <laughs> well, uh, I know of two. Okay, let's hear Ooh. your corrections, Tam. Well, I mean, uh, he admitted one himself, but there's the uh, dust on Mars is very thin, so there wouldn't be a big sandstorm right. problem. And then uh, Jeff Christian said they would never build an antenna that would blow away in a storm. Okay. Yeah, there could never be an error that would ever happen like that. (laughs) Well, I I think she's building the antennas or something, right? So she she would say that we would never let that. She might be the master of antennas. Um, (laughs) The thing is, is I I think they're planning for contingencies all the time, right? But whether they can imagine all of them is probably impossible. We're talking about The Martian, by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Martian by Andy Weir. <laughs> yeah. thought I should say that. Good, good, good recovery. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we were saying there might not be a lot to say about this book. I have a feeling that's not true. Um, everybody thought it was good, except Tam, you thought it was too long. Is that what you're saying? No, I thought it was perfect. I thought it was thrilling to the last minute. Oh. oh, okay, good. Um, uh, Here's a question for you. Is it science fiction? Well, I mean, uh, the uh, propulsion is science fiction, isn't it? And a man on Mars never happened, so that's science we, fiction. We, I think we have ion engines. They just don't we do. power any human-powered spaceships. But isn't science fiction the idea of using the science and then putting people in positions they wouldn't have been in otherwise? I mean, so to me, that's science fiction. We don't do that. But I'm hoping somebody at NASA is reading this and going, hey, great way to do it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> just just floating that out there. Yeah, yeah. Let's, well, let's just leave some guy there for a year. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> but sending well, the ship and dropping all the stuff and, right. you know. The leaving the guy there is one of the mission options people have been talking about. You know, the one-way Mars mission, mm-hmm. which already has volunteers lined up. I know, and I feel like if people would like to sacrifice themselves like this, that's okay. I think, I think it's I think okay, it's but I think it would be better if we could actually figure out who we'd want to send. <laughs> ah. I've got, we only get to choose one person to kick off the Earth, is what you're saying? Yeah, I've got a list. I <laughs> 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 we have a boat, uh, boat person off the island sort of thing. But they I'll have to be able to give scientific information back. I mean, otherwise there's no point. So... I was thinking we can call this mundane science fiction. Remember that movement? Mm. Yeah, I, I think I, I think it's there's something strange about this book. I, mean, I, I, it seems like Andy Weir's pretty familiar with science fiction overall. I mean, you don't get a lot of that in the actual text, but if you read about what he's into and such, it seems he's pretty clear. And it's more in, inspired by Apollo 13 than it is by any. Um, of its literary predecessors, I think. 
well, which I'll... makes me think it's it's more not science fiction, you know. Well, to me well, though, it really. When I was reading it, yes, there was the whenever NASA was involved, there was the Apollo 13 aspect. But the part I really liked was the part that really reminded me of the Heinlein juveniles like uh, Farmer in the Sky. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's a little Farmer in the Sky going on there. There's there? like tons of it, I feel like, because I was surprised when I listened to Farmer in the Sky at how much was just devoted to now I cleared the rocks. Here's how we did it. <laughs> <laughs> and then every so often he'd break off for a little commentary about overpopulation and traveling to the stars as people would have their little philosophical campfire. The education then, system is completely broken and you have to listen to your father and have all the money. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it was Heinlein. So, yes, indeed. Oh, yeah. And maybe join the army while you're at it, uh, the military. But in that aspect, it really, to me... I think the thing that people is maybe resonating with people is there's some kind of fascination in watching people work those details out. And this was like an adult version of that. Mm. So let's talk about the details a little bit. I know, Mike, you said that you had tracked the locations that were mentioned on Mars. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I did. I'm a, as you know, Jenny, I'm a GIS geek. So the first thing that I did is I started looking for locations in the book and I can, I can send you all this, but I have a Google Mars, um, track of, you know, where Watney went and I wanted to see, you know, how well he, that Weir did with the details and, and uh, he did a pretty good job. Um, I, I can send you the map. One of the things though is the original location for Aries 3. It would, based on, the the information in the book they picked a really boring spot on Mars to uh, mm-hmm. to land Ares three um, just you know triangulating based on what he said so I mean that's that's one of the holes in the story this, I just think they started out in a really boring spot hmm. uh, well didn't they do that in the Apollo missions too they picked the most boring place ever so that they could make sure it land nice and smooth good point yeah. Um, but this is supposed to be the third mission, so <laughs> I think by the third Apollo mission they were um, they were landing at much more geologically interesting places, or uh, not geologically. What would the word be? Selenologically. Sol- <laughs> were these some of the first people to actually land on Mars? Wasn't that part of the point, or maybe I missed that? I listened. Ares three was the third mission. I think there was other. Well, but Apollo 11 is the one where they walked on the moon, so that's why I was thinking they may have not done that. Um, I couldn't oh, remember. If you if you do the tracking, though, that actually makes sense. Apollo 13 is the third moon mission. Ares 3 is the third successful. Uh, ah, got it. Okay. Mission, right? Uh, probably just a numbers accident, but um, yeah, I, I want to. I'm. I think this is. The most interesting question to me about this book is why it feels not like science fiction. I, I really enjoyed it, and a lot of the problems that are being worked are very, yeah, Heinleinian or hard science fiction problems in that interview on Science Friday. He, he does make, you know, claim to it to be a hard science fiction novel. But I, th- I was thinking, like, the most preposterous part of the book was the budget being fulfilled for these missions at all. Like, I don't know how the, we're always saying it's 20 years away. The moon, the Martian missions are always 20, manned Martian missions are always 20 years away. How do we get 
that much money spent, you know, billions of dollars spent on space. No, I, it doesn't I, seem plausible I, to I, me anymore. I, I didn't see it. I, that, that for me sounded like one step into science fiction or fantasy. I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, one of the criticisms of the movie of Apollo 13 is that there's no context to it. I mean, the opening, the prologue where you see the uh, main astronaut's family is about like, you know, like a 30 second glimpse. Oh, yeah, this is the 60s. And then it moves on. Um, and, you know, I, I guess you could have that criticism here, you know, just pouring all this money down, um, which just seems, I mean, the current White House is against expanding space and Congress mm-hmm. is not exactly in favor of it. So um, yeah, we don't even have a shuttle anymore. Right. Uh, there's. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with the current problems with Russia, it's like <laughs> this seems that seems highly improbable that this is going to happen. The, the, Chi- the Chinese missions that are mentioned in the book very briefly are um, they seem plausible. They seem in line with with the reality yeah. of today. But the, the 20 set 20 minutes into the future, this future seems like it it's it, it seems like post uh, space program wish fulfillment mm-hmm. science fiction rather because mm-hmm. I, I would love this to be a true story you know this would be a great true story but now we're going from Apollo 13 where we're taking actual history and dramatizing it in, in story and and now we're, we're saying well we don't actually need it to actually happen anymore and and that I think has something to do with why people would want to go die on Mars you know in a one way mission is <laughs> Because right. it's about it's about story, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the great narrative for your life. Is dying being the first person to die on Mars? Wow, that'd be great, Mike. Did so you maybe ever... when they when they make a movie out of this book, that'll get the space program going again. <laughs> I, I think I, I don't I don't think it works that way. I don't think uh, like. Uh, I, I don't know. know. He wanted Bradley Cooper, and I'm pretty sure that if people thought Bradley Cooper would go to <laughs> Mars, I'd be I'd be giving tax dollars for it. I'm just saying. We've had, a, we've had Mars movies before, right? Right. Yeah, and Gravity, and mm, not good ones. And, and but see, even Gravity, Gravity felt the same way to me. It was like, mm-hmm. wow, this is great. It's just impossible. <laughs> well, this <laughs> because I, I had a similar reaction because mine was more depressing. I thought that, like Gravity, this had an extremely sad ending. Not the not the rescue, you know. That's great, but that what it said about the space program. I mean, you know, in Gravity, they wipe out more or less the entire orbital presence of humankind, and you learn the lesson is it's time to go back to Earth. Mm. And the big achievement here of, of of the Martian is to come back home. They don't go forward in any meaningful way. I mean, and both of those sound pretty relevant, uh, good expressions of our time. Yeah, <laughs> we we shouldn't be so d- depressed well, when it is such a good book. Maybe but that's um, what it has to think about. great books can be depressing. <laughs> yeah, are, but that's not why you want to read it. I mean, well, you, guys, you guys were just talking about on the beach a couple of weeks ago, right? Uh, yeah, but but uh, we survived that. I feel like it's how you look at it too, because I didn't feel like gravity. W- I, you know that comment about wiping out our orbital presence. I was like, oh, that never occurred to me. I was yeah, me neither. Work, looking at the human drama, and in that sense, it was highly successful. Um, and I, I think that's what it is here too. And one of my complaints about the book was we didn't really see much character development or any depth of character really from anyone, which it kind of is a Heinleinian thing also to me, but it's, 
you know, when he's going, oh, man, my parents and I'm bummed out about that. And but he never thinks about anything more. And I feel like he had enough time. He'd have been going, I could die. Is there what are my other concerns in life? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. He, he was just on full on MacGyver mode and never, right. never um, gets to existential despair. I really I think that's the one thing about the book that made me not like it as much. Um, is that lack of emotional response? Mm-hmm. You know, I've been through active shooter training at my university twice now. And uh, wow. one of the things that the latest police chief has told us is that when you're in a crisis, the more you've trained, like trained your body to respond, the less your brain has to think. Right. And I guess I can understand that in a situation where you have to react immediately and it's in that that specific moment. But I kind of wonder, you know, this is kind of in for the long haul. He's there for a long time. He has to think about it a lot. It's not just an immediate response. I mean, you know, he's putting a lot of thought into it. Obviously his training is important, but you can't tell me that nowhere in there he wouldn't have had, you know, some kind of trauma or stress or emotion. I mean, he's not a robot, but he kind of acts like a robot. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, you guys, uh, I don't know if you guys know, what pilots are like. Pilots mm-hmm. tend to be the most boring people you would ever meet. And the reason they're so boring is you want them to be that way. Right. You don't want them to be, you know, crazy, wacky, uh, you know, joking all the time because that is not what you want. <laughs> but I'm friends with a, a fighter pilot and he's not like that. Or he was a fighter pilot and he's not like that. I'm not saying all of them, but I'm saying in general. If you've if you've met pilots, you know, and like they tend not to be action movie hero people and they don't tend to joke around in my experience. However, you take that and then you add in astronaut level and that is just sort of a magnification of it. So the the main character here is I don't think he would be put on Mars because he's just too um, prone to joking. it's it makes him a a fun character to listen to uh in his you know his 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 things but they tend not to make jokes is my experience with pilots and i know he's not a pilot but botanist maybe maybe they're yeah he's a botanist right (laughs) engineered botanist they gotta be botanists are well known to be hilarious i think we all know that right (laughs) But it sure came in handy to keep his spirits up while he's alone right. on Mars. I had many lols in this in this book. This was very very funny. Lots of Agreed. funny one liners and such. But mm-hmm. uh, oh, as in L O L, not L U. I know that's. I did the same thing. L O L. Yes, and not all I agree. This is really. I I checked it out from the library, and then my family hijacked it. And uh, <laughs> took turns reading good jokes out loud to me. I'm like, and it, it was, it was, the whole thing was really comic. It was, it was a good comedy. Um, mm-hmm. And and not just on not just on uh, Watney's side, but also the you know the the Ares ship and uh, and mm-hmm. NASA. I mean, there's a lot of shtick, a lot of one-liners, a lot of um, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of good comedy. It was uh, it was funny. Uh, the only um, other fiction that I think Andy Weir has done is a webcomic. And you guys seen that? It's uh-uh. it's pretty comic. <laughs> it's it's not a uh, oh. it's not a 
you know, just a, a life log sort of thing. It's a it's a pure science fictiony comedy driven uh, story. Well, maybe some of these problems, which you know, still great book, uh, are things that come from the fact of the way the genesis of the book, which I was really interested in, that he wrote it for himself essentially, and then put it on his blog, and then people wanted downloads of it because they didn't want to read it on the screen and eventually to make it easy he made it available on kindle and it just took off and then everybody went publishers and amazon went well well, hey because it's not 99 cents on kindle anymore it's ten dollars right oh wow and And it's a published book he wanted to be free but um, amazon made him charge 99 cents yeah well i it feels a little bit like outsider uh uh, publication, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't, it has a lot more swearing in it than I think I've I've heard in a novel for ten years. Um, it's unusual amount of swearing, and I guess that's in especially a to lot little of, kids. Uh, is there a lot of? Well, at the end. Oh, at the end, right? I felt okay. that was unrealistic. Also, he would have been asked that question by a thousand people, and he acted yeah. like that was the first time he'd heard it, and he was much more savvy than that. That was just, to me, that was a fail. Uh, uh, well, it was just sort of a, I you don't have to think done. about this at anymore because the book's over. So I know why it was done. I'm just saying. It's just to follow, you know, it's to make it symmetrical. Got it. <laughs> um, but uh, the, I think it it doesn't feel like it could have been written by a mainstream writer in that sense. You know, it, it's too, um, because it's not as, in dialogue with so much science fiction as most science fiction seems to be, um, at least hard science fiction seems to be. And it doesn't seem to, uh, conform to the, you know, set it f- 400 years in the future so that we can, um, <laughs> not think about how we're going to get there from here. Maybe that's the broad appeal because I know that my husband never reads fiction and this is one where I was, I've told him enough about it where he actually said, you know, on that three day driving trip we're going to take this summer, maybe we could listen to that book. Oh. Yeah. I, I was telling Jenny that, uh, it almost seemed like the, maybe the story started like, I taught high school chemistry, you know, and one of the things I, I hated teaching was stoichiometry. It's basically right. which of a chemical do you put in? and find out how much chemical comes out. And I told Jenny, it seems like it all, this book almost seemed to start like a really engaging stoichiometry problem. And in fact, <laughs> I think at one point, at one point he does say, you know, remember the algebra problems you were given in school. And it seems like I wonder if that was sort of the genesis of this and he built a story around it. It just felt that way to me sure. at the feels, beginning. It feels like it makes you interested in, in all of the things that he's working on. I mean, it, it, it is very good hard SF in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. So stay in school, kids. Study your working math. working problems with with real uh, equipment and technology. It's, it seems like you know one of those revelations you get when you're reading about physics, and you say matter is energy. Matter is like a condensed form of energy. If you have enough energy, you can do anything. That's mm-hmm. what he does, right? Yeah. It's pretty uh, it's pretty cool um, that all of these things are possible because. It's just it's just expensive, you know, all that equipment, getting it there, and 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 you know, converting fuel into into uh, water and water into fuel. It's all possible and all. Cool. No, that that whole making water thing. I was like, what? You could do that? 
That was awesome. Sorry, everybody who knew that, but I was amazed. Um, well, and also the thing I do admire is he does, I, I guess because of the entrance of NASA into it, so you're looking at the publicity problems and what they're dealing with and the dramatic arc of is he going to get off, you get more and more invested in this character so that by the time he's going through that canyon and falls down and gets to the end where you you know from NASA's point of view, here's this huge cloud, he can't convert solar energy, and he doesn't know. I mean, I was pretty worried about him because I didn't have any guarantee that he wasn't just going to die, especially at the end, which is why I admit it, I cried. Tears oh. of joy, tears of joy. Oh. <laughs> but when he was rescued, I was ramped up. I was listening. I was on the edge of my seat, and I was excited about it. Oh, what do you guys think about the the plausibility of not telling the crew uh, that their companion was still alive? That seemed a little forced Bogus. to me. Bogus. To me. I, I can see a bureaucracy playing games like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it, it's like it's almost too uh, bogus, but you, you know, whenever you've got a bureaucracy, you also say they can do anything stupid. <laughs> True. Uh, I guess one thing that that surprised me about that is it made me think of the mundane SF aspect. I thought, all right, these guys are not going to be totally out of connection with the Earth. They've got to be getting signals. They've got to mm-hmm. be getting some other form of communication from people on earth especially if we go 20 years ahead you know i mean somebody somebody's parent or child will say hey what do you think Mm -hmm. about mark or you know Mm -hmm. that uh, i guess there's not a lot of satire in the book it's mostly slapstick but i suspected that was one satirical jab to get the bureaucracy part Mm -hmm. yeah i think in that science friday friday interview the the uh host was uh, was Ira Flato, I think is his name. Yeah. He, sa- he said, uh, you, you, you don't make the NASA people look that good. And he said, oh, that was not my intention at all. And I can see it sort of both ways. They're, they're, uh, heroic and very highly competent. But, uh, yeah, the, uh, the negative parts are, are there as well. And he sounded genuinely shocked, I thought. Yeah, I agree. Um, so nobody must have brought that up. And I suddenly started thinking over everything because I accepted it like you guys seem to have, which is this is a bureaucracy. They're going to make stupid decisions from their own concerns. Well, I guess then this is in dialogue with science fiction because what, <laughs> what we get is the old – and you mentioned Highland, right? This is the old tradition of the engineer as hero. And that, and the enemies of engineers are often bureaucrats. I mean, because well, I, I, NASA does good things in the book. Again and again, Watney praises the engineering that they've done, right? The yeah. the stuff that is durable, the stuff that's last that last is really good. Um, I mean, this is a, this is a classic thing to do for American SF. Yeah, it it, it feels like it's 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 uh, in that tradition, but. It more like a, a it stemmed off from the same root, you know, mm-hmm. rather than um, it's in dialogue. So I was trying to think of things mm-hmm. that were actually um, that it could have been in dialogue with, and thinking about are there any connections? They're very tenuous. So the very first one that I think of is uh, uh, Martian Odyssey by Stanley G. Weinbaum. Yeah, 
often considered like the first of the post Wells science fiction. It's a hard science fiction story set on Mars about a, an astronaut who on an Ares mission, uh, not that that's big shock. It's the name <laughs> of the planet. It's an uh, alternate God, right? Um, is stranded and has to uh, hike halfway across Mars or a couple hundred kilometers uh, to survive uh, and gets later picked up by an uh, uh, international crew of, you know, his his team who accidentally, you know, crashed him there or whatever it is. Uh, but there's aliens, right? <laughs> and you can breathe the air of Mars with special training, right? So this is pre... Um, oh. and there's canals, right? It's, it's pre, pre, pre mariner. Uh, that's right. There's no image. It's, it's pre all of the knowledge we have about how Mars actually is. Uh, uh the aliens make sense if you see do. this as a dialogue with Robinson Crusoe. Uh, that's the other, uh, uh, there is a, actually a book, uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars, I believe. It's a movie. And a movie, yeah. And a movie. And a movie. By monkey. Um, <laughs> the hot dog plants. Right. That's a great. That's actually a really interesting hard SF movie. It's <laughs> if, no, if you haven't if you haven't seen it, most of the movie is um, lots of meticulous details. You get a lot of the guy keeps running out of oxygen, and he keeps his oxygen supply dwindles. And he keeps coming up with ways of surviving. You know, mm-hmm. there's lots of hands-on tech, um, and lots of really. I mean, it, it tries really hard for a Hollywood movie to actually be. Hard SF. But, you know, Robinson Crusoe, well, I think, this, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, and it's in line with what we knew about Mars at the time. We hadn't yep. known Mariner. We didn't know it was a dry, desolate place. I think we were still hanging on to our, our Lowell idea of Mars. So I think, like you said, Brian, I think it was a, a pretty, um, it, it, it tempted to be true to the science at the time. Yeah, it's yep. a good movie. I think it was advertised that way, too. Hmm. The most what? science fictional movie ever or something. What a different time. You know, trying to do a hard SF movie now is uh, much much more difficult in terms of marketing. There's a, a Paul Anderson novel uh, based on a novella, I think, two-part novella. Um, the novella is called uh, A Bicycle Built for Brew, mm-hmm. but the, the novel is called, um, it's a short novel still, but it's called The Makeshift, Makeshift Rock, Rocket. Makeshift huh. rocket, and it's about a rocket that's powered by beer. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it doesn't have to leave a, a giant gravitational uh, body, you know, gravity well. It's it, it's between asteroids or something. But two two guys stranded on a on a rock get together a bunch of barrels of beer and and um, make a multi stage <laughs> rocket to get to where they're going. Uh, not well reviewed that book, by the way. But there's not that much uh, other than I, those two that I could think of that this is, you know. What about um, Jules Verne? Didn't he write about going to the moon? Was that um, maybe I'm wrong? From Earth yeah. to the moon, or something like that. Yeah, I didn't Never read that, but isn't that he tended to write more? straightforwardly that way, didn't he? Has anybody I read I think that? that's the one where all they needed were fur coats and rifles to survive. Are you thinking of that first movie where the rocket hits the man mm. in the moon in the yeah. eye? I mean, because that I was read some that way. Yeah, I read some book from that era that that's all they needed, but that was for the moon, not for Mars. You might be right. thinking of Wells, uh, First Man in the Moon. Yeah. 
Oh, they okay. both wrote books about going to uh, to the moon, but um, and the, 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 Fern, the Fern book is awesome. I mean, it's it's such a hilarious, entertaining book. I mean, you get the idea of we're going to shoot guys to the moon with a giant bullet. So <laughs> what what country in the world will do this? Well, obviously America. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you get the the amazing prognostication of they launch from Florida, right? right? And they right. splash down at the end, right? <laughs> Pretty good, yeah. But but the other thing, Lem Cecil Lem has this point about Wells and Verne, which goes back to Robinson, Robinson Crusoe, where he says that there's this kind of tradition of SF where you've got the the lone people in exploration, and they have enough equipment to get by. Uh, they're basically a little Robinson Crusoe story, mm-hmm. and he calls this Robinsoniads. Mm-hmm. And this you know this is a lot like a Robinsoniad, except you don't get Friday, you don't get the uh, monkey from uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. He's totally. Yeah, unfortunately. I I was rereading Robinson Crusoe not that long ago. I hadn't read it since I was a kid. Amazing. And it it's it's fascinatingly interesting as a, a sort of a uh an insight into the mindset of, of the European people at that time, you mm-hmm. know. Uh mm-hmm. it's it's colonialism and and mm-hmm. he's he's clearly insane. <laughs> He's clearly entirely insane. Yeah. What is he, well, he plays you emperor. don't get when you're a kid. You just think it's cool. He's like emperor of the island? Is that what he calls yeah. himself when he greets? Yeah, the, and he's, he's paranoid. He's he's completely paranoid. Yeah. He's like, he's building like fortresses all over the island and manning them with hundreds of guns that he's 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 got back from the ship. Cannibals? Were there cannibals or something that he was? Well, yeah. I've but read it, so I don't know. There, there are, but um, he he knew there would be cannibals before they even on the island, you know. I, so it's it's like almost everything guy. is he's anticipating the the um, the thing, and then it comes. And it's almost dreamlike, and it's mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's logic. I think but, I remember uh, reading the beginning of that book, and it was after he, you know, had been, if I'm remembering the right one, where he'd been shipwrecked and stuck, and then he, you know, was home for a while, and then he went back again. Am I thinking the right book? Yes. And I was like, you're not that clever, okay? He's also very unlucky. Yeah. <laughs> Don't ship out with this guy. He's worse than sailing no. Odysseus. Uh, it's, he's, it's based on a real story. Of a real guy who, <laughs> yep. But the reason he was shipwrecked was not because he was shipwrecked. He was, he was marooned because he was such an asshole ah. that everybody on the ship said, get off of this thing. You know, okay. It is literally send them to Mars. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing. Get them off. Um, okay, I have another example. Uh, John Barley's Thunder and Lightning series. Um, in the first book, Red Thunder, people make a spaceship out of old tanker cars and try to beat the Chinese to Mars. So, how is it? I, I haven't I haven't read it. I've been looking at it as a possible juvenile for my 15 year old to read. Hmm. Hmm. I haven't heard of this. Heinlein's first uh, first juvenile is Rocket Ship Galileo. Um, oh, and, that's and that. That's a it's a pretty good book. It's, they make a rock chip and go to not Mars but the moon, uh, the first moon landing they think, and it turns out oh there's Nazis on on the moon, <laughs> and it's just just the book came out just soon enough after after the war um, that you know you say oh they, it's possible they're still up there secret Nazis on the moon I knew it it gets uh, well, um. And that, but see, that kind of also speaks to uh, not the backyard rocket ship. But I was thinking when we were talking about there doesn't seem to be a reason for this budget, because the only reason 
you know, we had the space program in the first place was, oh, do you think you're going to go to the moon first, Russians? I don't think so. Cold War. So if something like that came up again, I bet the space program would get revved up. You know, oh, the Chinese are the only ones up there. I don't think so. I mean, that's the kind of thing that could get you going to Mars, but that's not mentioned in the book, obviously. So, oh, see, it's, it hasn't it's, been working. I mean, we have yeah. China has Taikonauts, uh, Japan and India have been boosting their space program, and there's not a peep out of the U.S. Yeah, it seems like it seems like there's there's some sh- fundamental shift either in in the media or in uh, the goal the goal-oriented sort of sciency push that was happening after World War II, um, that it was, it was, the U S doesn't seem all that interested in, in putting any, any interest into the space program. uh, Yeah. Well, it is, it's, it's hard to explain. Agreed. I I think there's a lot of ways to explain it, but it's just, it's hard to bear up under. Um, and it's it's weirdly uh, bipartisan, you know. You don't get uh, yeah. one party or another doing it. Um, I was at um, I was in a Rust Belt city last month, uh, St. Louis, and um, going through the the big arch. You guys have seen photos of that. Mm-hmm. It's astonishing to stand under. You know, you just mm-hmm. going through it, and, and you oh yeah, I've driven by it. It's crazy. Oh, it's, it's like being in the Ring World. You know, you look up, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and you think, wow, and that's from the sixties. Mm-hmm. And you think, what a what a different age! Just to build something crazy like that, you know, we're not we're not at that visionary stage. And this is Neil Stephenson's been charging us with this, saying that you know we're really good at inventing Twitter, but mm. we're not you know we're not doing anything you know on the moon or like maybe that's maybe that's part of the appeal of this book is is that it gets to you know snap us back into that reality when these things are possible. And it's not just the first Mars mission; it's the third one. You know, it's at the point where it's almost routine. Yeah, where we can yeah. do something grand for the sake of doing, be, for the sake of the achievement itself. Um, yes. And that's kind of that idea of this being mundane because we're seeing all the little details. But the whole idea of what they undertake for the entire book, you know, NASA going, hey, shot in the arm. and we, Well, let's get this guy back. Let's yeah. use it. This will help everything, and everybody gets caught up in it, and that's the kind of thing that we miss, I think. And um, Scott and I have had numerous conversations, and I think y'all too, about there's not that optimistic feel anymore like there used to be. You know, that whole Star Trek push of, we can do it. And that's something that we need that, I think. People need that to try to achieve something greater. Personal worldview here coming out. But, you know, we can do things. I agree with you. I just, I don't, I don't know what the solution is other than. I don't have a solution. I'm just saying. Well, I, I maybe that's what this book appeals to. I'm just not sure that space has to be the place, though. I mean, did you guys see that article really recently about how Stephen Hawking is warning humanity about <laughs> the dangers of artificial intelligence? I, I originally yep. thought, oh, this is a, this is a fake article, but no, it was a real article. Um, so obviously we're making huge strides in other areas now. We're focusing our efforts on, you know, robotics and the Internet and drones. And, you know, it's all very internalized, but it's not like we're not making strides. But those are hard for us to see. You well, know, yeah, um, didn't Hawking warn us about it, telling the aliens where we are, too? 
Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's been wrong before. Genius, but well, maybe he's not wrong. So far, so far. I mean, I mean, the, his his AI argument is interesting. He says, you know, if you I, just if you take the Kurzweil argument and say we're going to get good AI at some point, if we're going to come close to the singularity, then wow, we should be planning for it, but we're not. And he, right. he makes the alien invasion argument. He says, well, if, if someone told us an alien fleet was approaching the solar system and it'll be here in 20 years, we'd start preparing now, right? No, there would be a ton of deniers. There's a book about that. Yeah. Even presented with tons of evidence would not, would not buy it. Okay, no. so, so Fox News would be against it, right. But, uh, <laughs> but you know. It's all a conspiracy to get Obama elected. Um, for we've <laughs> actually had a movie about that. It's called Mars Attack. Get with it, people. <laughs> That's We've right. seen the scenario. That was a really unfunny movie, too. Gosh. I loved it. It was hilarious. Well, well oh, we it's... <laughs> disagree on that, but but no, I, that was that was the Hawking point, and I I think you're right about our Earth focus, and that's kind of missing from um from what from Weir's book is that there's not a lot of Earth, and what there is is pretty sketchy, and it's entirely in the service of the plot. You know, we just see NASA just for that. We all we see of China is China's ability to put that one probe up in orbit. Right. We don't know anything else that's going on. It's literally escapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's kind of why it saddens me <laughs> because whenever I think about, well, that can't happen. Um, when you're looking at a Heinlein book, you know, you can look back at 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 what did happen, right? I mean, he he was. He he did a, a movie actually based on one of his books, or right? Maybe it's the other way around. That was Destination Moon, right? Yep. And and what happened a few years later? They actually go to the moon. Um, but you could see the momentum was happening, right? There's the popularity of of uh, science fiction in the in the fifties. Uh, did it cause the uh, the space race? I I don't know, but it certainly didn't hurt it. Could be a factor. Certainly didn't well, hurt. I was interested because I was looking at the Amazon um, listing for this, and there were something like 3,353 reviews or something, and it was wow. four and a half stars. Mm-hmm. And so that's a preponderance of people who just loved it. And so many, you know, usually you get to a couple hundred, 300 reviews, people stop commenting because they know they're what they're thinking is represented. At least that's how I always feel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to have that many people feel like they want to talk about that book there. Well, and that's just a slim percentage of the number who've read right. it, right? right? Most people don't actually write reviews or even put a star rating on anything. So That's a great point, they're, Julie. They're like testimonials. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's definitely, I mean, if, if you look at it at a marketplace sort of thing, it's, it's definitely fulfilling a missing part of the market. But, right. And something that people are resonating with. And so, um, you know, we don't know what factors will come together, possibly, but it kind of shows there would be maybe some public support for something like that. And that could be like you're saying, Jesse, just a factor that goes into something we can't, you know, really see the future of. Maybe we just need to send more potatoes to space. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I kind of like the, the focus matter of the book. Sorry. I just kind of like how the book just focuses on the problem solving and not on the inner turmoil or the detailed descriptions of the environment. I mean, oh, uh, that's what I hate about the book. <laughs> oh, I, I guess it's a matter of your taste then. Yeah. There's a lot of jokes about 70s, you know, TV. Yeah, I like uh, pop culture references in, in books. 
Well, he found just the worst stuff. You're like, oh, what's the music going to be? Disco. It had to be disco, you know. Or when he'd come back and go, I'm pretty worried about, you know, Mr. Roper now doing, you know, you're just like, I get it. You're so invested. That's all you've got. But Abba is awesome. Hands off, Abba. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, maybe maybe, uh, it's a reaction to a lot of contemporary SF, which is actually really good at describing (coughs) interpersonal issues and uh, um, characterization. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how's this? Uh, my favorite joke. Let's see if you guys have a favorite joke. My favorite joke was actually not a joke. It was when he he gave you a bunch of facts about maritime law and uh, international law, and then and he does all this logic and then twists it all up and says, "I'm a space pirate," and I, I said, "That's perfect. It's perfect because it gives you it gives you." Uh, the anticipation, not sure where he's going, and then, yeah, it's great. I mean, one of the things I talked to Luke Burridge about a while ago that makes me think about whenever I read sort of contemporaneous science fiction or actually just any modern science fiction is it seems like that that characters in a science fictional future don't read science fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, they... In this book, he's reading, he's watching '70s shows, but they're not like the six million. Oh, wait, there is a six million dollar man. Right. <laughs> it wasn't, um, you know, explicitly science fiction stuff that he was he was dealing with because um, it's too meta, right? It's too meta to have a, a character in another science fiction book set in the future that's cyberpunk reading William Gibson. You know, that'd be too. Couldn't uh, couldn't he be? Uh watching, I don't know, UFO or Space 1999. No. It's a great 70s show. Oh, but they're both British. They're not American. Sorry, I was going to ask you guys, because I... No, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to ask, I, I didn't get a chance to listen to the Science Friday, but I was wondering if um, the author gave any nod to Bob Zubrin, who wrote the, the book The Case for Mars. I, cause it felt to me at times no. like... A lot of the technology and the and the strategy to get to Mars, you know, this idea that you could take the carbon dioxide from the from the Martian atmosphere that you brought along with you, and they never said in the book what the fuel was, but you know, Zubrin spells out that it would be methane. It's it seems like there was a lot of um, that he kind of took the the Zubrin, which was a nonfiction book. It was a proposal on how we get to Mars and wrapped a story around it. I didn't know mm-hmm. if he said anything about his inspiration. It was not mentioned, but it it certainly does feel like that, doesn't it? Yeah, the term Kristen thought the same thing. But either he said it or she saw there were similarities. Huh. Mm-hmm. He just acted like he started it out to see could you do these things, um, and then it turned into more of a story. And I guess he could have been influenced by all that, but the feeling I got was he said it had been sitting on his blog long enough that all these geeks would write and go, you got this calculation wrong, or astronauts were writing Mm -hmm. and saying, um, oh, here's another way you could burn off this stuff to get the carbon dioxide. So he said it was as accurate as he could make it based on all that feedback because he's a, is he a physicist maybe? I think he's a programmer. Okay. Maybe he studied it or just that. I don't know. He's, he mentioned yeah, he, science somehow. but He said he's been obsessed with the space program for most of his life. Yeah. So you kind of I wonder mean, if that's also an influence that he just didn't, he'd come across it but didn't realize he was echoing it or something. I like to give him the benefit of the doubt. I, I assume he's read it. 
as part of his research. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I know he programmed a uh, something to calculate the uh, path of the spaceship. Yeah, he did. For, for, for some reason, uh, constant acceleration is hard to calculate. So he, he did like a simulation where every minute he'll calculate where it is. And he actually played it on the Google Talk, and you can see the, the graphics from it. Nice. Nice. Classic hard SF. Yeah. yeah. For well, me, Michael, the fact that he was a programmer meant that was why there was a problem with deeper characters and stuff. He just wasn't uh, interested in that. Programmers don't interact with people, so yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's a problem as much as a style, right? Right, it, right, exactly. Just it, it's it, it's it's very surficial. He doesn't his tr- his 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 trauma is more body pr- trauma than hmm. than mental trauma, yeah. as you just mentioned, being isolated and such, but that's, yeah. Well, and also, when you think of this, I just sat here and went, this is this guy's first novel. Yeah. That's crazy. That's good. I, I think he's had some trunk novels before this. Some what? Some uh, tr- novels that didn't go anywhere, and he put them in a trunk. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Okay. I wanted to ask Mike if um, if you could say what other references do you see to Mars and nonfiction and fiction here? I'm sorry, Brian, can you repeat the question? Yeah. What other references to Martian texts do you see here, both fiction and nonfiction? Well, I mean, I definitely get, I don't know if you've read Red Mars, Tim Stanley Robinson. Yeah. Um, It definitely feels like that. And I mean, that's another fairly hard sci-fi book. A lot more characters. The way it worked for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it drew me in with the science, and then it got me thinking about you know more of the societal issues. So it feels a little bit like Red Mars, but it actually feels more like Zubrin's book to me, um, mm-hmm. with just a better story. Jenny, maybe you would like Red Mars. That has more like uh, inner character, emotion, and thinking and stuff. It's a terrific book. This is a whole trilogy. Yeah, I've heard it. it's good. Oh, it's it's excellent, and one of the it's got this. I mean, I don't think any he's written anything is good. Um, it has, I mean, it has terrific hard science. I mean, it's it's an expedition that's going to start terraforming and colonizing Mars, and then um, it's also social science because you get to see this community. It's I forget how many hundred fifty people or so dropped in, and they immediately start getting into political divisions, and so a lot <laughs> of it is political argument. You know, how do you organize a new society? How do you do this? And then um, you get economics, you get um, and lots of characters. I mean, really good characters. You get the the heroic first man on Mars who's back for return. You get a uh, a kind of Roy Cohen character, a, a, a manipulating, scheming guy. You get um, oh, it's it's a it's a lush book. I really recommend yeah. it. Yeah, and so the end is fi- tremendous. Just thrown in. Yeah. Did you finish the whole trilogy? Yeah, yeah, and I I don't recommend going on. Oh, okay, <laughs> I've only done the first two, Brian. So the third's. It's weaker not worth stuff. It? Is it? No, he's he's done this before. He's written trilogies, and the first one is a big hit. Like the Science in the Capital series, the first book is really good, and then it just plummets from then on. Uh, well, I'll go back to if, if we're talking Stanley Robinson, just go back to his early utopian book uh-huh. called uh, Pacific Edge, which yep. you know it's not set in space, but seems very plausible to more and more plausible these days. It's set in a post-collapse U.S. with you know. Um, uh, eco, is, there was another book, Ecotopia, that was really terrible, but um, mm-hmm. it's like that, but good. 
um, set in Southern California. He's he's actually got a triptych of uh, I think one's a dystopia, one's a utopia, and one's a mm-hmm. somewhere in between. It's called the Gold Coast Trilogy. That's right. And I've only read Pacific Edge, which I think is the the, the most highly regarded of the three. But it was it was most excellent. Adding it to my list. <laughs> I want to throw in one more text, but it's not a book, and it's not Mars. And I think this goes back to what we were saying about the history of the space program, which is a classic 60s movie, Marooned. Oh, uh, who's, is that? Gregory Peck. Gregory? And that influenced Gravity also. Yes, it did. It's actually yeah. based on a book, but the, but the, the movie is more important. And in Mystery Science Theater savages it. Um, oh. I know, I know. But, it's, but, the, but the gimmick is, you know, you get um, an astronaut who's stuck in orbit. And um, they have to rescue the astronaut. And they get these increasingly, it gets more and more difficult to do. And in um, Florida, they're going to send a rescue mission. But a hurricane swoops over Canaveral and just sits there and they can't launch. So Mm. a Soviet cosmonaut goes to rescue the astronaut. And it doesn't work out quite so well. So then they actually end up launching, this is clever as hell, through the eye of the hurricane. Very dramatic. Um, and it's 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 all it's all hard SF. They're all trying to figure out you know how do you match uh, orbital heights, how do you match orbital speeds. It's uh, mm. I, mean, I don't know how how it holds up now, but again, it's a Cold War story, you know, and it's um, that had to be in the back of the guy's mind writing this. That's based on a novel too. It looks like yeah, Matt Caden or Martin Caden. Mm-hmm. Oh, like that's on my cue. It's funny that that is a pre uh, a pre you know of the Apollo program actually getting off the ground um, story. It's it, it's somehow different when it's in it's in anticipation. Yeah, I guess I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it, can okay, I can, can I share something? I was thinking about this book. It's completely unrelated to what you just said. I apologize. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, I started thinking of different versions of it. Like if it. It, the same topic in the hands of different authors. Mm. Um, <laughs> like, for instance, I felt like the personality of the astronaut. I mean, OK, MacGyver, maybe. But I could also picture him with a British accent. You know how all the British people during World War Two, you know, cheerio, pip, pip, going to go down to the tube while we're getting bombed and we'll just keep carrying on. You know, <laughs> I can picture that. I can also picture a horror version with the same exact story elements. The disco yeah. music. Yeah. The isolation. John Carpenter will film it. <laughs> yep. Exactly. He did. I kind of yeah, feel like I thing. would like those versions. Yeah. I'm, it almost turned into a horror movie with the uh, with the cannibalism. Um, I thought that was I thought that was interestingly uh, practically int- you know I thought that was a very plausible. Um, Scenario. I thought, uh, you know, the the crew of Ares is actually they oh yeah by a lot of people, and I, I understand why because it's so Mark Watney uh, expositionary. But um, they're a, a good batch of characters. Yeah, and they work the problems in the same way he does. There is Not, a relate- I can't, oh, go, okay. go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Well, there is a related horror film um, called Apollo 18, and, huh. and there's actually an echo of it in the book. Um, hmm. Have you guys seen this? Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. 
It's it's a it's an interesting movie. I, I think it's it's better than critics said. It's a found footage movie about a Apollo. This is a secret mission. It turns out that it was kind of launched by the Pentagon, and um, the you know two guys land on the moon and things go bad. And one of the ways the one of the echoes is at the end of the movie, um, one of the astronauts takes off from the moon to try and reunite with the service module. Like so, like at the end of um, you know like at the end of um, the Martian. He's got to make this desperate orbital rendezvous, and it's really hard to do for all the orbital mechanics reasons. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a creepy film. It's very understated. They go to Mars and they find it, bad things. That's and, pretty uh, new, isn't it? Yeah, I quite liked it. Yeah, it came out last year. Oh, um, it's got some implausibilities in it as oh, well. Oh, sure. Um, it's, it's openly a horror movie. I mean, that's that's the so who's in it? Uh, uh, nope. Nobody. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or directed it, also nobody. just. I don't know, okay. but it's it's a found footage movie, so it it's designed to make you think that it's, you know, it's real. Is there a yeah. supernatural element to it? Mm, no. Okay. Aliens, but they're this not. This is just oh. the, it's only the two of us, I'm going slowly crazy, which of us is it kind of thing, right? Or something like that? It's It, it, it plays out like an Apollo mission gone very, very badly. Okay. And I don't huh? want to spoil it, but one of the things that they no, don't, don't spoil it. they don't get a lot of information. It's like, um, uh, what's the TV show about the alien invasion that's still going on? Um, Falling Skies. Um, you know, like that, they just, they, they know so little about the aliens. They, they try very, um, and that's not, you, you, you don't get the omniscient point of view. Um, there are aliens? Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yeah. Um, the, speaking of that movie, uh, I actually prefer the 1989 version of that movie which is not really which the same movie it's called Moontrap oh uh, no no oh god oh that's so bad it's terrible but it's also wonderful oh I was I was at a premiere of that with Walter oh, Koenig wow. oh man oh it was so bad so Bruce Campbell and Walter Koenig uh, oh right there we know it's probably not very good uh, yet. check off it, it, in a in a certain sense, it's awful, right? But it, in another sense, it's wonderful yes. because it, it's very pulpy, um, and it's it's got some ridiculous special effects and ridiculous plot elements. But get this: the wonderful thing about oh, are you talking about Brian? Are you talking about Moontrap? The ending of Moontrap? No, I'm talking about the whole movie of Moontrap being horrible. <laughs> okay, <laughs> not just the ending. Oh well, the 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 wonderful thing about Moontrap is they say we need to go back to the moon. I've never heard that sentence. There's something on the moon. We need to go back to the moon. So what do they do? They take the one uh, Apollo uh, booster that's still around, and they just get it out of mothballs and fix it up and and go up using the same technology, which is it, it's nostalgic at a time when we still had a space program. <laughs> Yeah, but 89, that would have been, yeah, exactly. There was the, the shuttle, shuttle and everything, the, yeah. The shuttle can't go to the moon, right? The shuttle's... Lower. Uh, lower. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, Moontrap is terrible, but it's also <laughs> wonderful. Um, He does mention John Carter on Mars. He says he wants a green woman princess. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he must have read John Carter on Mars. I mean, yeah. when, when, he, when the guy wrote uh, John Carter, he just told the knowledge that he... Had at hand. I mean, he didn't know that uh, there was no air and stuff. Huh. And everyone thought there were canals. That, yeah, but that's right. not really a science fiction story, no, right? No, not really. There's, um... No, it's fantasy, but it's. I could never get into the book, but oh, uh, but I loved the, the movie. Science fiction set on the moon is 
Is that the one you're looking for, Brian? Which one? The Arthur C. Clarke story set on the moon? A Fall of Moon Dust? No, it's a short story. It's very short. It's only about 20 pages about an astronaut stranded on the moon. Uh, I'm sorry, on Mars, and uh, how he comes to terms with it. Um, oh, I'm trying to find I'm going through a list right now. It's, uh, it's extremely sad and very, very moving because there's no real solution. Um, and, uh, oh, God, I'm, I'm going through a list Arthur of stories. Arthur C. Clarke for you. There is, um, as, uh, this is not a completely related um, story, but there's a story called A Walk in the Sun, which is uh, a science fiction story set on, on the moon. It's kind of cool because it's a hard science fiction. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember the name of the author, but the premise is uh, there's an astronaut trapped on the moon um, in a solar-powered spaceship. Uh, it's not spaceship. Spacesuit. Solar-powered spacesuit. Um and she needs to keep walking. Uh, as Jeffrey Landis wrote it. Um, she needs to keep walking uh, in the sunlight or she will die until she gets rescued. And, uh, of course, the way the moon is, right, it's, it's uh, in sunlight for 28 days. Um, and so it's actually possible for, if you keep up a pretty good pace, to stay in the sunlight and never, you know, never end up in the shadow. And so it's, it's, it's one of those, Oh, that's curious fact of, uh, silly neology, you know, <laughs> that you can, you can do this. And, um, it's a short, it's a short story, but it's, it's, uh, it's pretty good. It's one good. of those endurance stories. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's a little more of the psychological and a lot less swearing and jokes <laughs> thing going on with it. Well, I, f- I found the story in a, the more it occurs to me, the more I really want to ask Andy Weir about it. The story is called Transit of Earth. Mm. It's about a, about a Mars expedition. And one of the things that they're doing is they're going to record the Earth transiting across the sun. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell me if this sounds familiar. They land, and um, when there's, an, there's a problem with the lander taking off. Uh, and one guy gets stranded behind. Uh-huh. And uh, he's left with music, but it's his music which is good. Um, and he has to come to terms with this. And the Earth goes crazy trying to figure out ways of rescuing him. And there's no way. He's basically got something like 20 days of air, and that's it. And the story is first person, um, and about him gradually coming to terms with this. Um, hmm. and it's, it's, it's Clark at his best. It's really, mm-hmm. there's eerie moments. Like the, the, he mentions he was skeptical about life on Mars, but there was this one night when something happened. And... Um, it turns out the, the, the astronaut has a childhood nightmare of suffocation. Mm. He remembers reading a story about U-boat uh, sailors dying under the sea, and it haunts him, and he has to get over that. It's only like 20 pages long. And what he does at the end, he's put on box toccata and fugue, and he puts on his last canister of, of air, and he walks out onto the surface of Mars. The end. Exactly. I don't think that's how I'd want to end my life. <laughs> but no, it's but it's your story, Jenny. It's, it's all there. <laughs> well, there's a there's a question for a party game question. You're the last astronaut on Mars. What music do you listen to before you die? But I think the oh, the, the, the Clark, yeah. Well, the Clark story. I think I wonder that you know he's obviously one of the giants of SF and. Uh, oh, yeah. I wonder if this one uh, poked in his mind. Yeah, I was thinking that. I wonder how he would react to this book. It's too bad he's not still around. 
Yeah, because they loved writing things very realistically like that and then just looking at the other elements of them. So He wouldn't have sworn so much if he did it. Plus <laughs> language. Uh, okay, I've, I've got a book. Speaking of Grimm, uh, We Who Are About To by Joanna Russ. Oh, man. Oh, where this, uh, yeah, this small group of people goes to a planet. Well, she's part of like the new wave. So yeah. he has to flip everything around. and <laughs> Of course it's grim then, right? Yeah. Oh, like, like there's, a, there's a small group of people, and then you end up with one person alive. And then half the book is just her slowly dying. Oh. So add, add but, that to your list. But don't Thank forget, you, she also decides to kill other people in the mission. Yeah, yeah. It's a kind of like grand version of suicide. She wants them all to die. And, and it succeeds. Oh, good. I know. I'm a huge fan of, and the book is beautifully told. My God, I, I, it was so hard. I, I, I've never, I don't want to read it again. Yeah. It's brilliant. What was I just listening to? Oh, I guess it was Michael Droughts. Uh, he was talking about fantasy and he was saying that, uh, one of the things about fantasy versus hard science fiction is you wind, or maybe he was talking about new, newer forms of fantasy than Tolkien, who he obviously, you know, idolizes. And in good company, me too. But um, he was saying that um, the more traditional forms of fantasy give you this hope at the end, if nothing else. And then the newer ones are more like you're saying there. You read it and you go, oh, okay, I'm glad I read it. That was great. I'm never reading it again, ever. Because you just can't take it. And in which case, I like this book better than... I might read some of those. I've been making notes, but... I don't know. I might have to come back to Andy Weir just to, you know, get that taste out of my mouth. Well, one of the things I didn't like in that Science Friday interview um, was he asked the question I really hate, which is, "Are you working on a sequel?" Oh, um, this is the this is why people work on sequels is because people ask for them. But it's like it's like when. Not that I'm a music guy, but, you know, it's like when the band comes out and you say, play your old songs. Right. Right. It's like, yeah, no, don't play your old songs. Try and do something new. Don't make a sequel. There shouldn't be a sequel to this book. Right. All he said is that he's making a pitch, but he doesn't say. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't answer it by yes. But but the the thing is, is, you know, when you've had something, you know, it's it's very childlike to I think to to you know you've had something now you say I want more of the same please mm-hmm. it's it's very um I don't want to expand my horizon sort of thing that's what rereading is for you have that one thing I, already I, I now do something right. else I mean yeah. what's he gonna do take it to Venus <laughs> okay you can do a whole different system on Venus but he says I I'll never go back to Mars but Venus that's okay you know yeah. it just will become a parody of itself. Yeah. So I bet there's fan fiction of it. Uh, see, I'd like to read Jenny's uh, idea. You know, the British guy stranded <laughs> on Mars. He's the exact same plot. Uh, maybe he doesn't have potatoes. Maybe he has rutabagas or something. <laughs> the Monty Python version? But yeah, I, I wouldn't read the whole novel. I'd just read a few pages. I think that'd be worth it. So now I'm imagining the Russian guy stranded on Mars. <laughs> He's potatoes. potatoes for vodka, not for potatoes. <laughs> they certainly couldn't outswear the, the American, that's for sure. Potatoes beats, yeah, yeah. And maybe, okay. you know, one of the nice things about this is we, we're kind of crazed for dystopias right now, right? We've got mm-hmm. dystopian fiction, we've got zombies, mm-hmm. this all. 
And I guess it's a real shot in the arm to have such a sweet, positive book. Mm-hmm. You know, where they all live. Everybody lives, and, and they solve the problem. And um, it's, They work together using their brains instead of uh, destroy the planet. Yeah. yeah. So the stakes just don't seem very high, though. When yeah. when that happens, when everything works out, yeah, you kind of don't believe that there was ever any danger. At least that's how I feel about it. I, about that, I felt like, you felt that I felt way like about the, that book, Jenny. Really? Yeah, you didn't feel like, like he could so, die. I felt like I didn't necessarily trust the author. I felt like he could die. Yeah, but he, he wasn't too worried about it. I thought he he was worried, but it, but they made a point of saying he copes by using humor, which yeah. is what a lot of us do. So I, I know like, manageable. Oh yeah, I know the science for that. I I, I know how to feed myself on Mars. <laughs> I don't know. After that explosion where everything was, he was having to tape arms shut and pull things off. I was like, I I don't. It was too too much in the middle of the book for me to be worried about him at that point. But I was like, how hmm. in the heck is he going to do this? Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty easy to to uh, point ho- poke holes in this in this book because it's good. So uh, there's not a lot to say about the <laughs> all the good stuff other than wow, it's great. But uh, one one part where I was thinking of of you know wow, this is going to be interesting was he's describing you know he's got a broken faceplate and how is he going to fix right? that? He's going to yeah. cut off his arm. Okay, that's no good. I, is, is he going to run? <laughs> run from the from the airlock to the the hab? That's not going to work very well. Um, it covers up his faceplate. Oh, just happens to have a camera in his arm. It's like, oh, well, that's cheating. There's a little <laughs> bit of that. Whenever a problem comes up, he just adds more equipment. <laughs> There's a little more equipment somewhere. The, the ones where I didn't feel like he was cheating was when he goes to Pathfinder, right? When he goes to yeah. equipment, it's like it's a locked room puzzle, how to solve this equation. Right. When we know what the equipment is, it's not cheating. Mm-hmm. And it feels a lot cooler, uh, you know. Uh, it's an escape the room game. Have you guys seen those? Yeah. 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 Where you, or, or, you know what? It's more, it's more like uh, a portal, right? Yeah. You, yeah. You, he set it up and, yeah. It, the game portal. Mm-hmm, yeah, the game portal. Yeah, you, you you've got a simple set of equipment. I mean, that's a really simple set of equipment. And you just solve the solve the problem. Well, and I did you guys know, ever Tim... feel like? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was wondering if y'all ever felt like uh, this was too much for one person. You know that um, you know, we we scrapped what two other space missions? Uh, yeah. I spent all these resources to get one person back. What did we lose by trying to save this one guy? Well, um, I don't think it, 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 I think the, the Chinese have a more interesting, you know, case. Uh, The Americans, they sort of have to do it, right? Um, they have to do it because the, the public's going to know that he's alive. Somebody's going to put it together. And if they leave him to die, uh, and the Chinese go to rescue him, that would really look bad, you know? So they really have to do it. But the, in the case of the Chinese, I think that that was a much more humane, uh, decision, uh, much more collegial than, you know, um, a lot of people think the Russians were, you know, but they, they were into, uh, it's, it's very collegial sort of human story, I think. It's supposed to be, us all humans pulling together and irregardless of cost, it's a very military sort of, 
it, it, I didn't find it implausible at all, Mike. I like, yeah, because it's that value know? of life. Go ahead. Sorry. What if the public didn't? Well, I didn't find it implausible. I, I just, it, it just got me asking the question of myself. I mean, I can see us making the same decisions. Um, you know, resources be damned. We need to get this one person. But it, I don't mm-hmm. know, you know, when you think about the decisions we at all costs, they do have larger ramifications. And I don't, you know, I didn't feel like they really visited that in the book at all. And maybe, it, you know, maybe that wasn't um, a good fit for this story, but. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I agree. I was getting really skeptical halfway through, especially, you know, thinking about cases where America is okay with seeing people die. Um, you know, we, and we do, we do have the obsession with, you know, runaway brides and missing white girls, but we're, huh. but we're also, and, and we do freak out about our military casualties more than most of the world does. But on the same time, we, you know, we happily kill, what, 30,000 people a year on our freeways, you know, and we don't do anything about that. Um, <laughs> we're, um, we're okay to, with, um, watching a couple of great American cities, Detroit and New Orleans die, and we're okay with that. Um, uh, I was, I, I was expecting to see a debate on the earth. I thought really that you had people saying, okay, we gotta bring this guy back, but $50 billion to bring him back? No, come on. Well, I think it's like that scenario of a kid stuck in a well and the lengths people will go to because it's the individual story that you relate to. Right. As opposed to, you know, it's that same thing that Stalin said, what, right? About, you know, right. one person they care about, two, two billion is just a number or whatever. One is, a, um, one is a tragedy and millions is a statistic. Yeah, right. So in that sense, I I thought it was plausible. And also, and again, I listened to it and it's been a little while, but they gave enough kind of surface explanations of it, of like why this was a good idea for them to do it, that I felt like that was probably close enough. I didn't, hmm. it never occurred to me to be that skeptical because they kept going, oh, the PR and we could really use it and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You know? and, they, and they also had him continue the experiments, so he actually find a lot of value that way. Oh, right. You're right. They got a lot out of that. As long as they get the rocks back. Well, I thought those rocks, and I, I really did love that whole, you know, he's got to do the Morse code rocks thing. Oh, that was great. I was, I was, that was one problem I was thinking of is how do, how would NASA communicate with him without a radio? Like he can communicate with them because they can see him. And I was thinking, well, they've got a bunch of, um, they've got a bunch of things in orbit. They could crash one of them, right? But the problem is, is, one piece of data is not enough usually to like it's not a yes no thing. Right, right. Right. I was thinking the only thing that they could really do is is like okay, he's heading into a dust storm. What the only thing they could really do is slam a satellite, you know, a couple hundred meters in front of him and say, "Oh, I wonder what that means." <laughs> turn back. Don't go there. That's about it, right? I mean, th- th- there's no it's a. It was a fascinating problem for me. I was thinking they've got to find a way to communicate with him, to tell them this. But he didn't actually solve. They didn't solve it that way. They, they had to let him figure it out for himself. Um, and that's kind of what I liked is that it was this combination of it, when you said he didn't have a Man Friday. Essentially, NASA was his Man Friday. It wasn't able to really do a lot for him. 
but it could provide just enough support for all the stuff he couldn't do. And that idea of it being too much for one person, Tam, I, I saw you'd mentioned on Goodreads, you're like 80% through, oh my gosh, are there more engineering things? And to me, that was brilliantly solved by suddenly the danger. He's so close. Now right. all these things ramping up that he can't really solve. He just has to kind of, you know, scoot around the edge or something or whatever. Um, yeah, he definitely packs the excitement into the very end of the book. Mm-hmm. And I saw someone complaining in some review that they were so disappointed that he didn't save himself at the end. He blacked out. And and I was like, no, I think that was pretty realistic. I He can't do everything. He's not Superman. Close, but not Superman. He's MacGyver, not Superman. Right. So, so Clark Kent. Here's, here's um, my recommendation. Everybody who's read The Martian should check out another book. It's not set on Mars, but it has a a very plausible SF feel to it. Uh, it's it's hyper realistic in in a lot of senses. Um, it's called Ascent, A S C E N T. You know, as in going up. Mm-hmm. It's by Jed Mercurio, who's a guy who, as far as I can tell, has not written much else science fiction. Um, and it's it's set in an alternate uh, history sort of. It's about a uh, Russian moon program that it's not actually alternate history because it's a secret program. Uh, And it follows the character uh, much earlier than this does. It starts in World War II. He, we see him fighting in Stalingrad. He goes to Korea, becomes a pilot um, for the, you know, North Koreans. (laughs) Um, And then he is in a shadow uh, Apollo program where they go to the moon and he he can't get off. Um, And, it has a negative ending, not a positive ending, but it's very Russian, right? Um, and in the competition to beat the Americans, um, the way the Russians would go is they don't know, just like the Chinese, they don't acknowledge a launch until it's finished, right? Right, right, right. Uh, because only successes are, are right. appreciated. And um, so this that's why we've never heard this story. And it's very powerful, Um and the Russian experience, you know, is much harsher. Uh, you know, if you guys, there's a, a short story uh, called The Chief Designer about, about Korolev. the, uh, yeah, uh, exactly, about Korolev. And, you know, he was in a concentration camp uh, before he was running their space program. Um, and then, you know, he comes back with no teeth because they've all fallen out due to... Gulag. Uh, yeah, he's in the gulag and he's not getting any vegetables. So, um, the Russian experience is much harsher and, and so the competition is fiercer, uh, less collegial, um, uh, but also more pulling together, even if the man who's running things is a, a madman. Um, so it's like an alternate, uh, history version of a story kind of like this, except much more grim, much more Russian. And no jokes. I totally want to read this now. Yeah, it's really good. You really know uh, how to sell it. I can't I, wait to read this book. I don't know why it wasn't much more loved. Um, it came, the audiobook came out in 2007, and I, I very much uh, think it was perfect, basically. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Well, in that, in that sense, I want to recommend a graphic novel. Uh, mm. Yay. T-Minus, mm. The Race to the Moon. Hmm. Not heard of this one. It's um, 
Yeah, my my son found this, and it's um, it's wonderful. It's basically uh, about a decade um, culminating in uh, Apollo 11, and it um, it follows the Soviet and American programs in parallel, um, and it's meticulously his sourced. I mean, it's really really great history, and mm. and lots of in the gutters between panels, you'll see lots of footnotes and math and details, and it's um, it's a story we all know, but it's it's beautifully done. Um, yeah, Amazon's got a solid five stars for it, and that's what I give it. Um, terrific characters, really brought out some great humor. Um, it's just one of the best versions of this. And it has, again, gives the Soviet, you remind me of this, um, Jesse, you know, it gives the Soviet side equal treatment, which is really, really important. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we, we don't hear enough of uh, the, the way NASA is, they give you everything, right? So we know everything that NASA's done, basically, all the missions. Uh, there's some data out for everything, pictures for everything. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, would, you wouldn't know. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, there's a, you and Margaret Atwood. You and Landing didn't happen. Okay. Um, uh, the Russians, they did tons of stuff. They, they put uh, stuff on the moon. But... There's almost no data because it's all in Russian, and that's not the problem. Well, and the government won't give it out. That's yeah, it's like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and also a lot of it's a lot of it's uh, like with NASA. A lot of it is uh, out of date um, technologically, but yes. but there hasn't been any money to to upgrade it. You know, that's, right. that's why they had like the uh, what was the Soviet space shuttle called? Um, Soyuz. No, no, the actual space shuttle was a ripoff of the uh, oh Buran. Yeah, and it, like they found there's one left on the side of a road south of Moscow. Yeah. I mean, oh. they, I know, I know. Technically, that that was the orbiter. The shuttle is the correct. entire package. Correct. You are correct. I feel like I could make a diner out of that though, and it would be very popular. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I don't think it ever went up with people in it though, yeah. right? Yeah, they did an elevated version. Yeah. Damn, between Mike and Jesse, we've got hardcore space knowledge here. Hmm. Well, uh, oh yeah, Tam, you have some books to recommend, right? Well, I don't know if I recommend it, but it's uh, definitely connected. Frank Schatzing's Limit. It's like over a thousand pages. It's certainly <laughs> well researched, but uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty long. But it's about um, they mine uh, the moon for um, helium three as our future uh, source of energy after fossil fuels are gone. And uh, all, all kinds of disasters happen on the moon. But there's also like half the book is like a spy novel on Earth. So it goes back and forth. So uh, it's pretty long. But if you want a well-researched book, that's definitely one. Is and then, it uh, it? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, okay. aside from the length, I think it's pretty good. Well, yeah, that sounds like a Michener book. But yeah, in length, that's all. Right. That's and I, and uh, Brian Alexander and I like. Planet ES, an anime that's hard SF. That's about a ship in space that's cleaning up all the debris. Oh. If they, if they were there before gravity, the gravity would have never happened. Well, they're going to have to do it now that gravity's happened, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's Japanese, and it's uh, it's really, there's a lot of good stuff in it. I was really surprised. Planet ES? Or Planet E's, I think. Oh. Uh, there's an anime I saw that I cannot recommend, but it is hard SF. It's called Wings of Hanames, I think it's called. 
I always think of wings of mayonnaise, but that's <laughs> not right. It, it is, uh, again, an alternate history. Uh, maybe Japan goes to the goes to space, but yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. I have now something we're not recommending. Okay, <laughs> that's not. I have something related in a different way to recommend. Okay. Um, a botanist in a horror type situation, but not in space. Um, oh. The Southern Reach trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer. The first book is Annihilation. How is oh, it? Been, yeah. Technically, it's a biologist, not a botanist, but botany is a very important subject in the first novel, at least. I haven't read the second one yet. And is it good? Yeah, it's really good. It's, oh, I like him a lot. It's been getting a lot of attention. It has. I mean, he's been getting he, attention from all all over the place. Right. And he has he's been pretty excited about it. He's, you know, finally mm-hmm. books being paid attention to. Um, I don't think that's what he said, but... No, and all three books will be published in one year. Yeah, they're all coming out this year. So okay. I've been reading Vandermeer since the beginning. Oh. Oh, you guys. <laughs> oh, you read all oh, the fungus? I meant to read him. No, I know he, that doesn't count. He had fungus people before. He was fun. Yeah. yeah. And also, he did great work with his wife uh, as editors. Mm-hmm. You know, between Weird Tales, which she used to run, and uh, a whole bunch of great collections on the new Weird. and Yeah, seen- yeah, yeah. They just came out with the Time Travelers collection. I can't remember the f- official name of it, but yeah. Yeah, that weird one is one, again, on my list where I've been wanting to read that. It's on my shelf, and I've never oh. cracked it. <laughs> oh, you're breaking my heart, man. I know, it's awful. my heart. <laughs> All right, then uh, one more recommendation for me. Let me ask you guys if you've seen this. Um, there's a British writer, Ian Sales who has started writing a series called The Apollo Quartet. Uh, the first one is called Adrift on the Sea of Rains. And I think each of these is an um, alternate history of uh, the space program. I think all four are out now. They have great titles, like The Eye with Which the Universe Beholds Itself. Hmm. I've only read uh, Adrift on the Sea of Rains, and it's about a um, uh, moon colony set up but it's it's very small. Um, it's a military moon colony set by the U.S. Um, and the alternate history is that one of the uh, crew is a scientist who is working with a Nazi weapon that was left over from World War II, captured by the U.S., one which allows you to play with alternate histories. Mm. And the problem is, World War III has just happened on Earth and wiped out the human race. So this colony is stranded and they're flipping through these alternate worlds trying to find one where that didn't happen. Mm. Uh, I don't want to spoil the street, but it's really neat. And, and the hard science. Uh, I heard this on where Starship Sofa, and uh, they had to give you, like, um, they did a special part of it where they just went through a bunch of abbreviations and acronyms for you. Mm. So they could, you know, tell you this is what that stands for and this is what that stands for. Sounds good. It's Ian's S-A-L-E-S, is that his name? Yep. Okay. Excellent. I, I know there's a Stephen Baxter book where uh, Kennedy's never assassinated, and so the space program gets more accelerated, and uh, even BBC Radio did a dramatization of it. But I, I can't find the title right now. Voyage? Maybe. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.